Welcome to Texas True Crime. I'm your host, Jess. I'm so glad that you're here with me again today. But before we get started, I want to apologize to all of you. As I was getting today's episode ready, I realized that the ending of part two is all out of whack. So I've gotten it fixed and it's going to take about 24 hours for it to update. But I just want to apologize again. I have noticed in the past when I'm putting in all the segments that they sometimes get out of order, but I caught it. This time I did not. So from now on, I will make extra sure that everything is where it's supposed to be. Today, we're going to wrap up the Servant Girl Annihilator case. And when it's done, I'd love to hear your thoughts about who you think the killer might be. Do you think it was Jack the Ripper? Is it even a possibility? Or do you think maybe it was someone else? Next week is our spring break for us in our part of Texas. And so I'm going to try really hard to get another episode recorded for all of you before I leave for our trip. But if I can't get it done, I promise to have a new episode for everyone the following week. So let's get started. Now, remember, we left off. Gracie Vance in Orange, Washington had been murdered by the servant girl annihilator. Their friends who were staying with them, Patsy Gibson and Lucinda Body, had been viciously attacked, and Doc Woods had been accused of the murders. But he was quickly cleared, and the police were back at square one again. So the police were still discussing their latest information about Woods and trying to figure out what their next step was going to be since it was becoming very obvious that he wasn't to blame for the crimes. When John R. Robinson walked into the police station with his Swedish maid, he told the officers that since Mary Ramey's murder, the girl was too scared to stay in the servants' quarters, so she'd been sleeping in one of the spare bedrooms in the house. So, And the girl was only going out to the servants' quarters during the daytime to get a change of clothes and to get things that she might need. Now, that morning, the girl went out to her quarters to find that someone had broken into her cabin. Her dresses had all been pulled out of the closet. The trunks with the clothes and other items had all been gone through, and everything was scattered all over the room, and the sheets had been torn off the bed. The officer stood there, completely speechless. And one night, someone had murdered a woman and her boyfriend and attacked two of their friends that were staying with them ransacked the home of another girl and scared the wits out of another woman by standing outside her window and making noises. The police were starting to feel like the killer was mocking them and trying to let them know that they were never going to catch him because he was always one step ahead. Now that same day, Captain Hennessy and his assistants from the detective agency returned to Austin. They were brought up to speed on the events of the weekend, and then they also went back out asking questions and talking to people on their own, hoping to find out who was guilty of these murders. Two days later, Hennessy held a press conference on the steps of the state capitol and asked reporters to meet him. He claimed that he had a break in the case. He told reporters that an African-American teenager named Jonathan Trigg had given him some information about another man who was guilty of the murders. Trigg said that he was at the Black Elephant Saloon on August 29th, the same night that Mary Ramey was murdered. 
he was standing near Oliver Townsend and he overheard him telling someone else that he was going to murder Mary Ramey. Trigg said he decided to follow Townsend and he followed him all the way to V.O. Weed's house, but he left before he saw if Townsend actually did anything. Hennessy also told reporters that Trigg said on the night of September 28th, the night that Gracie, Orange, Lucinda, and Patsy were attacked, he saw Townsend on Con- Congress Avenue with another man that he didn't know. Trigg said he got close enough to, to, to the two men to hear the man say to Townsend, you will be caught up with. And Townsend said, I've been killing them all and have not been caught up with yet. He then heard Townsend say that he was going to murder Gracie Vance later that night, and he started walking toward the Dunham house. Trigg followed him to the Dunham home and saw Townsend meet up with another man that he didn't recognize. Two men went into the servants' quarters, and Trigg heard a woman cry out, Please don't kill me! But Trigg got scared and he ran away. Reporters asked Hennessy why Trigg was just now coming forward with all this information. Hennessy said that Trigg told him that since he hadn't seen anything actually happen to Mary Ramey, he wanted to wait and see if anything else happened before he told police what he saw. He said after what happened to Gracie, Orange, Lucinda, and Patsy, he decided he better tell them what he knew. Hennessy then told the press that he went to the hospital and spoke with Lucinda and Patsy himself and that they saw Doc Woods standing outside the window before the attacks began so it was obvious that Oliver Townsend and Doc Woods were guilty. Hennessy went on to say that Woods' boss must have been mistaken when his boss said that he saw him working that day. Now, reporters weren't buying any of this. Did Hennessy really think a teenager just happened to be standing around and was lucky enough to hear all of that on two separate occasions? And would Oliver Townsend really just be that bold to be out and about talking about the crimes in public where anyone could hear him? Plus, were they really supposed to believe that this teenager was really going to be able to follow Townsend two separate times and not be caught? Not very likely. So shortly after Hennessy's announcement, reporters found out that Trigg was a waiter at the Carrollton house where the Hennessy where Hennessy and his men were staying. They believed that Hennessy probably bribed Trigg and convinced him to name Townsend and Woods as the attackers. Now, to make things worse for Hennessy, a reporter decided, from the Daily Statesman decided that he would go and interview Lucinda and Patsy himself. But when he got there, he discovered that Lucinda and Patsy were in such terrible shape that they weren't even able to carry on a conversation let alone answer questions about the night they were attacked. The reporter also said that the doctor told him that it was very possible that Lucinda would never regain the ability to have a conversation with anyone because of her brain injuries. Now, Hennessy tried to save face by saying that Lucinda must have identified Doc Woods in a state of delirium and that maybe Trigg had exaggerated things a little bit. But he was standing by what he said, and he believed that Oliver Townsend and a group of men were responsible for the murders and attacks that had been happening. He said he would be making more arrests. But none of Hennessy's accusations would hold water, and it quickly became clear that he had fabricated everything. So in mid-October, Mayor Robertson and the 
alderman sent the noble detective agency men, agency's men packing. Mayor Robertson and the alderman then passed an ordinance offering $250 to anyone who provided evidence leading to the arrest and conviction to the actual person or group of people responsible for the murders and the attacks. Following one of the tips received, police spent a few days following a man known only as Maurice. He was from Malaysia and was a cook at the Pearl House. He lived in a boarding house close to the Weeds house where Mary Ramey was murdered. People said that Maurice would get very drunk. In fact, it was quoted that he was beastly drunk and they would wander around the city late at night. They also said that fresh blood had been found in a pool of water not far from where Maurice lived on the night of Mary's murder. So police decided that they would follow Maurice and see if he did anything suspicious. But the whole time they followed him, he didn't do anything out of the ordinary. He went to work each night and then he went home. He didn't even get drunk. So by the end of October, it was clear to the citizens of Austin that police were no closer to finding out who had been committing these crimes. So men started teaching their servant women how to shoot pistols and giving them guns to carry with them. And if they weren't staying armed, then the servant women were leaving Austin in droves for fear of being the next victim. One reporter even said that servant women in Austin were going to be one of the rarest commodities around. An Austin-based reporter suggested that the crimes had actually been committed by one man and that they were carefully directed and intelligently consummated. This reporter also said that it was obvious that he was very intelligent and not your average citizen. Now, of course, today, profilers would have been brought in from the FBI to study the crimes and create a profile to help catch whoever this person was. The person would have been called a serial killer, but in the 1880s, that term didn't exist and neither did the psychology to establish a profile on someone. The Travis County Grand Jury wasn't in agreement at all with this line of thought, though. In fact, they decided to indict Walter Spencer. Remember the boyfriend of Molly Smith, who was our very first victim back on New Year's Eve in 1884? They said that Walter murdered Molly and then gave himself those injuries to cover up his crime. So during the trial, it became obvious that they had no new evidence and that Spencer had not murdered Molly or anyone else. The jury also learned that since the murder, Spencer himself still suffered from headaches from his injuries after that he received during the attack and that he lived with his mother quietly. He went to work each evening, played baseball on a local team and had not been in any kind of trouble whatsoever. So the jury quickly decided to acquit Walter Spencer and he left the courthouse a free man. Now to save face, Mayor Robertson decided that it was time to replace Marshal Groomsley. So when his term ended on December 22nd, the alderman began a search for a new town marshal. James Lucy was selected as the new marshal. He was a former Texas Ranger and a graduate from the University of Missouri. He had been able to solve a complicated series of land fraud cases, and so Mayor Robertson and the alderman thought that this made him the perfect candidate to help solve the murders in Austin. 
not only was he a true officer of the law, but he was also very intelligent. So they thought surely with both of these skills, he would be the one who could catch the killer. So after Lucy was hired, he helped patrol the streets throughout the night on December 23rd and again on December 24th, Christmas Eve. Now, people were full of Christmas spirit. Downtown was decorated. Santa Claus was out for the kids. People were out and about doing their last-minute shopping, and everyone was feeling hopeful. They were full, full of the Christmas spirit. And there hadn't been any more attacks since the night Gracie Vance was killed. So maybe they were finally catching a break. Maybe hiring this new marshal was going to help things. So all through the night, Sergeant Chinneville, Marshal Lucy, and the rest of the police force was all out patrolling. They had checked the saloons, all the back alleys. They were watching everything. But things had really been fairly quiet. But a little after midnight, early Christmas morning, Alexander Wilkie came flying down Congress Avenue on horseback yelling, A woman has been chopped to pieces on Water Street. It's Mrs. Hancock. Now, Mrs. Hancock was not a servant girl. And this was when things changed and people really got worried about what was going on. You see, Mrs. Hancock was a well-respected woman in the community. She was 43 years old and married to Moses Hancock, a prosperous carpenter in town, and the mother of two daughters. People described her as a handsome woman and one of the most refined ladies in Austin. So the officers raced to the Hancock's home where they found Moses Hancock in the parlor. He was still in his long underwear that was stained with blood. His wife was lying on a quilt and there were two deep wounds in her head that had been made by an axe. One of the blows had cut into her cheekbone and the other was between her left eye and ear and had gone through her skull into her brain. Her right ear had been punctured by some kind of metal rod. Mrs. Hancock was still alive, but she was breathing erratically and blood was coming from her mouth and they were worried that she wouldn't survive the night. Now, Marshal Lucy interviewed Moses Hancock. He said that he and his wife had spent the afternoon shopping downtown and then returned home. Their two daughters had gone to a Christmas party at a neighbor's house that evening and that he and his wife, Susan, had sat by the fireplace, shared a piece of cake, and then gone to bed between 10 and 11 o'clock. They went to bed in their adjoining bedrooms and left a lamp burning by the front door. Their two daughters had come home a little after 11 from the party and went straight to bed. Mr. Hancock said that a little before midnight, he was woken up by a noise. He went into his wife's room and saw that her sheets and bedspread were in a heap on the floor. Her trunks were open and her clothes had all been pulled out and were scattered all over the room. Sound familiar? The window was open and there was blood on the windowsill. Now I keep wondering, the guy is obviously not interested in the women's clothes. He's not interested in any of their stuff. He just wants to kill these women. So I guess he just likes to cause a scene and make a mess before he destroys these people's lives. I wonder, you know, what was his thought in tearing everything up? But that's all I can figure is that he just wants to make an even bigger mess of things. So, 
Mr. Hancock walked outside to the yard where he found his wife lying in a pool of blood. As he bent over to check on her, he heard a noise coming from the back fence, and he saw a shadowy male figure wearing dark clothes. The man jumped over the fence and ran off down the alley. So he started yelling, and he threw a rock at the man, but he didn't hit him. His next-door neighbor heard all the noise and came out to see what was happening. He helped Mrs. Mr. Hancock carry Mrs. Hancock into the house, and they found Alexander Wilkie, and he went to find help. Mr. Hancock, when the police arrived, Mr. Hancock was unable to give them any kind of description of the man because it was so dark. A bloody axe was found three feet from Mrs. Hancock's bedroom window. Mr. Hancock identified it as his own axe that he always left lying on the woodpile by the back fence. Now, there weren't any other pieces of evidence to find, so Marshal Lucy ordered that the axe be taken to the police department. Now, just a few minutes later, the sound of hoofbeats was heard coming up the road in the distance. Henry Brown rode up to the Hancock house, and he began yelling that a woman had been found on Hickory Street two blocks from City Hall. Everyone stopped and stared at him. It's Eula Phillips, he shouted. Her head's been chopped in two. Now, Eula Phillips was the 17-year-old wife of Jimmy Phillips, the 24-year-old son of a very successful architect and home builder in Austin. She was a tiny woman, barely five feet tall, and weighing just at 100 pounds, and she was considered one of Austin's most beautiful women. She loved to wear the finest clothes and the latest fashions, and she was often seen walking up and down Congress Avenue in her finery. Now, they found Eula in the Phillips' backyard. Her nightgown had been pulled all the way up around her neck. She was on her back, and her murder had been so recent that the blood around her was still warm and hadn't even congealed yet. She had been struck directly above the nose with an axe, and it had split her forehead wide open. There was another horizontal axe cut across the side of her head. Her nightgown had been tightly twisted around her neck, and the police speculated that the killer had used it like a rope to drag Eula across the yard. But this time, there was something new added to the crime scene. Eula's body had been stretched out with her arms straight out from her sides. And firewood had been placed on her body, across her breast, and one on her stomach. And her arms had been posed to look like she had been crucified. Marshal Lucy went into the house, and he found Jimmy in his and Eula's bedroom. Now, Jimmy was still in bed. He had a large gash above his ear that looked like it had also been from an axe itself. And there was a bloody axe lying at the foot of the bed. But Jimmy was unable to communicate at all. Jimmy's mother told the police that at sometime around 12.15 a.m., she heard her 10-month-old grandson Tommy crying. She went into Jimmy and Eula's bedroom and saw Jimmy lying under the sheets covered in blood and that Tommy was sitting in his crib unharmed but also covered in blood and holding an apple. So the killer 
decided that while he was there, he was going to give the baby an apple. I think it's interesting that, which I'm glad the killer, well, all except for poor little Mary Ramey, he doesn't harm the children. It's, it's odd, but like, why give the kid an apple? And Eula was gone. So Mrs. Phillips ran back to the master bedroom to get her husband. She told him that Eula was gone and that Jimmy had been hit in the head, but Tommy was okay. The elder Mr. Phillips found Eula in the backyard with the help of some of the other men in the neighborhood. One of the men ran over to City Hall to tell the night clerk at the police department what was happening and told him to send for the police. When the police got there, they found a bloody footprint on the wooden floor in the hallway outside of Jimmy and Eula's bedroom right next to a door leading to the backyard. Marshal Lucy ordered the floorboard with the footprint be removed and taken to the police department. He also wanted the axe from the bedroom as well. The elder Mr. Phillips identified it as his axe, saying the same thing that Mr. Hancock did. He left it on top of the woodpile behind the house, and that's where he always kept it. So it's, it's interesting to me, another thing, whoever the killer is, he's very organized in some aspects. He gets in, he gets out, he's quiet, no one hears him, and if anyone does see him, they still can't identify him because it's too dark, and he definitely stays to the shadows. But, it's like he leaves it to chance, because he doesn't bring his own weapons. A lot of times, it's weapons that he's found there at the crime scene. So some blood was found on the top railing of the fence in the backyard, but it led nowhere as usual. They brought the dogs, the dog sniffed around, but at this point, men had been all in that yard and they couldn't catch a scent of anyone. Now, Jimmy did eventually come to and ask where Eula was, but the doctor didn't say anything to him about what had actually happened that night. Because he was afraid that Jimmy would go into shock. Now, by 7.30 Christmas morning, all of the residents in Austin were aware of what had happened. And Christmas had been forgotten about and was ruined. People bought more guns, more ammunition. And now they were really in a frenzy because not only were servant girls being murdered, but now prominent women of the city were being murdered. This guy didn't care who it was anymore. He obviously was not concerned. So Marshal Lucy told Sergeant Chenneville to round up all the usual suspects, Oliver Townsend, Doc Woods, and Alec Mack, even though they'd all been cleared of the crimes before, they brought him back in. They, But I will give Marshal Lucy credit. He actually took some evidence away from the crime scene, unlike any of the other police officers, and when he brought in these guys, he dipped their feet in ink and put them on separate boards so he could compare them to the footprints that had been found at the Phillips home. But none of the footprints matched. And when all three of the men were interrogated yet again, none of them cracked. They all maintained their innocence and said they'd either been at home 
or at the Black Elephant Saloon. And you know that those interrogations were severe. This was not current day. And on top of it, all three of these men were African-American. So you know police felt like they could do what they wanted. But those, but all three of them held firm. They were not guilty. So people were freaked out. They came to City Hall and they demanded that all the saloons, the gambling dens, and the body houses be closed down. Now, a body house was a brothel. And they said they wanted a vigilance committee of regular citizens and said they wanted it to be made legal that regular citizens could make a citizen's arrest if they thought someone was suspicious of murder. Now, fortunately, this idea was shot down because the mayor and the aldermen knew that this would just lead to trouble and who knows what happened. So instead, they decided to hire the Pinkerton Agency in Chicago. They were not going to mess around with amateurs anymore. They were hiring the real deal. So 24 hours had passed since the murders of both women and still no suspects. Big surprise, right? People were refusing to leave their homes again. The businesses were closing because there was no one there to buy anything. No one would leave their house. People were stacking furniture up against the doors and the windows to barricade themselves in. They were on high alert. So on December 27th, an arrest was made in Belton, 90 miles north of Austin. The police in Belton thought that they had found the servant girl annihilator or annihilators in this case. They detained two men as they stepped off the train from Austin. The men had blood on their coats, their vests, sleeves of their shirts, and on their shoes. Now, these men were two poor white brothers named J.T. and J.P. Norwood. And they told police in Belton that they had gotten into a fist fight with each other on the train and that that was where the blood had come from. But the police in Belton were not buying this. They thought they had found the men, so they sent them back to Austin on the next train. Now, the men, the men of Austin had heard that these guys were coming back, and so they had formed a mob at the train station. But being smart, Marshal Lucy and Sergeant Chinneville met the brothers at the train stop before Austin, outside of town, and detained the men, questioned them, and figured out that they really were innocent and sent them back to their farm in San Marcos. Now, Mrs. Hancock finally passed away from her injuries that same afternoon. She was at home with her family, and uh, this, of course, dashed all of Marshall Lucy's hopes that maybe she would regain consciousness and be able to tell him anything about her attacker to help catch this guy. So the police still had nothing to go on to help with the investigation. Knowing that people were nervous and were even more on edge than ever before, Mayor Robertson let the people of Austin know that the Pinkerton Agency had been hired, hoping that this would give them a little bit of hope and calm some of their fears. But it didn't really. Five days later, the police, the police, I'm sorry, the people again gathered in front of City Hall. And this time, they wanted Mayor Robertson to use the incandescent arc lamps that had lit up the grounds of the New Orleans Exposition in 1855. Eight. I'm sorry, 
1885. Remember the big lights that were so bright, they said it felt like daylight and everyone wanted to know, why would you ever want it to feel like daylight during the nighttime? But the citizens thought that if it was lit up all night, no one would feel comfortable committing such horrible crimes because there would be nowhere to hide. But the conversation was put on hold because that day the Pinkertons arrived on the train. Now they were taken to City Hall, a contract was signed, and they were paid $3,000 on the spot. Now, after they were paid and the contracts were signed, the mayor and the aldermen began visiting with the detectives. And it they found out that Mayor Robertson had completely goofed up and had hired the wrong Pinkertons. In fact, this guy's last name was Pinkerton, but he wasn't associated, and he was from Chicago, but he wasn't associated at all with the real Pinkerton agency. But Mayor Robertson knew that if he let this get out, that he had hired the wrong people and really hadn't done his due diligence and made sure he was sending the telegram to the right place, he was going to get skewered. So the alderman and the um, mayor decided they would just keep that to themselves. But it became obvious very quickly that these detectives had no more idea than anyone else on how to solve the murders. So they let them finish out their contract and then they sent them on their way. Instead, they decided that maybe if they offered a huge reward, that maybe this would finally lead them to the person responsible for these brutal crimes. So $3,000, that's, that's a lot of money now, but can you imagine in 1885, $3,000 was put up as a reward for anyone who was able to aid in solving the murders and leading them to an arrest. Now, New Year's Day of 1886 came and went. People didn't celebrate. They didn't leave their homes. They were still scared. They were still worried. And they didn't leave after dark because they were afraid they would be the next victims. More talk was starting to circulate that maybe the killings had been done by one man. People were even starting to say maybe it was someone that you wouldn't even suspect. After all, all the worst suspects in town, the men who caused the most trouble, they'd all been rounded up. They'd all been put in jail, but the killings had continued. So maybe it was someone you'd least suspect hiding in plain sight. Now, a man named Thomas Bales showed up at City Hall, and he claimed that Eula Phillips was living a double life and that she'd been having an affair. He said that Jimmy was an abusive alcoholic and that she was very unhappy in her marriage. And she said that she met men at May Tobin's boarding house, which was not really a boarding house at all, but a body house, remember a brothel, where people could rent rooms by the hour for their illicit affairs. Now, you know, at this day and age, this was shocking. An affair was unheard of. Women didn't step out on their husbands and women for sure didn't go seek out other men for sex. That was just unheard of. So, Bales said that Tobin had confirmed to him that Eula met men there and that she had even been there Christmas Eve night meeting a man, but that she didn't know who that man was. 
Now, Bales believed Eula was murdered in a rage by her husband after he found out about her affairs. So, Jimmy was rounded up and put on trial for his wife's murder, but it became clear that he wasn't guilty. For starters, he still wasn't well himself. He was feeble and pale in the courtroom, and doctors and other people testified that there was no way that he could have given himself that wound on his head, and that Eula, being as little as she was, could have never delivered a blow that strong that could have hurt Jimmy like that. So, he couldn't have faked it, and Eula couldn't have given him that injury. Now, the other question was also asked that if Jimmy Phillips had murdered his wife in a rage, then who had murdered Susan Hancock? Now, Mr. Hancock was also put on trial for the murder of his wife. I mean, things had just really gotten absurd. No one believed these men had killed their husbands, but the authorities were grasping at straws, trying to put an end to things, and both men were eventually found innocent. Poor Jimmy Phillips had to appeal. He was found guilty the first time, unbelievably, by everyone. But then on his appeal, he was found innocent. And even though all kinds of crazy rumors flew around about both these men, they were found innocent, and it became clear they hadn't done anything just like everyone thought in the first place. So, trying to make headway in an arrest, all the old suspects were brought back in for questioning again. Now, remember Maurice, the Malaysian guy who got beastly drunk and uh, was followed, but he did nothing? They even decided they might go look for him again, too. So, they went back to his boarding house where he lived close to Mary Ramey. But when the police asked to speak to Maurice, the owner of the boarding house said, no, he left. He told her he was going to Galveston and he was boarding, going to board a steamer ship to sail to England. Hmm. Even though the people of Austin remained on pins and needles throughout the whole year of 1886, it was calm. Nothing else happened in Austin. Christmas came the people were worried that maybe since it was the anniversary of Eula Phillips and Susan Hancock's deaths, that maybe the killer would strike again, but nothing. Now, on July 13th, 1887, a report came from Gainesville that two young women had been murdered in a very similar way as women of Austin. They were both in their beds, struck in their heads with axes, ransacked rooms, brutally murdered and people wondered was it possible that the servant girl annihilator had moved on to other towns in texas but after that there were no more axe attacks in texas so people wondered what happened to him where had he gone was he just done that seemed kind of crazy but in september of 1888 a story came over the newswires from 4,295 miles away from Austin in Whitechapel, a district in East London. A woman named Mary Ann Polly Nichols was found in the street cut up and slashed so severely that she'd almost been decapitated and she'd been stabbed 37 times. Now, you know who we're talking about now. This is in London and... 
this is Jack the Ripper. Well, we all know that Jack would be accused of five murders in all, of five different women brutally massacring them in fairly similar ways to whoever had committed the crimes in Austin. Now, a letter was sent to police, and of course, he identified himself as Jack the Ripper. We know all this. And in that letter, he said he wouldn't quit until he was caught. Now, parallels were drawn between the Texas murders and the London murders. In fact, Scotland Yard began to wonder, could the killer from Texas have moved to London and started up again? The time frame could fit. Just like the Austin killings, though, the murders in Whitechapel were never solved, and those killings also just stopped. No one was ever caught. Now, a sailor said that he had met a man named Maurice from Malaysia who was a cook who had moved to London from Texas and that he visited him, visited him one night um, at a bar or a pub in London. So police in London went on the search for the Malaysian named Maurice, but they never could find him. Some of the people in London even liked the idea that it could be a man from Texas because surely an unrefined Texan from America would do these horrible crimes, not one of their refined citizens of London. But as we all know, Jack the Ripper was never caught either. So what do you think? Could it have been the same person? Could it be two different people? who just committed very similar crimes? Could Jack the Ripper maybe have been inspired by the servant girl Annihilator? Let me know what you think. Thanks for listening today. Please remember to rate, subscribe, and to tell a friend about the podcast. I'd love to hear from you and hear your thoughts on this. You can find me on Instagram at Texas True Crime Pod. Or you can email me at Texas True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. And I will see you next time. Bye.